You, you never speak ill of the dead because they'll come get you. Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of a sacred fire, where speakers gather to share their wisdom and insights. Creating a sacred space where all are welcome to warm their hands, here are your hosts, Caitlin Stormbreaker, Sarenth Odinson, and Jim Two Snakes, discuss spirituality, mythology, animism, and culture around a virtual sacred fire. Welcome. 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 Won't you join us around Grandfather Fire? Oh, blessed ones bearing beauty, wielding wisdom wisely, taking time to teach, walking the web of weird, carving new paths in places you who tread the ground before us you who walk the ways with us you who bring us bright blessings you who bring us bane and boon you carry our calling and craft you speak into soundless silence, the spells that strengthen us. You grew us from the ground up. You who ground us from the ground down. You who guide us and gift us in Gabo. Hail to you, O blessed ones. Hail to you, O ancestors. Blood and bone, spirit, lineage, initiation, tradition, powerful ancestors, good ancestors, blessed ancestors. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you always for walking with us. Hail to you all. You're listening to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. Episode 117. I'm your host, Jim Two Snakes, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How's it going tonight, Sarenth? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty good. I am uh, have a little bit of a longer weekend, got a little bit of time off, not completely, but a little bit extra time off, so I'm not going to complain about that. And Rock on. Decided I was going to do things that entertained me this weekend so we're not mowing the yard or doing anything else so that's that's how we're flowing today hell yes take your break <laughs> yeah how about you your things are going well on your side things are going pretty well i uh i i needed a mental health day so i took last night off from work and uh i got to meet up with some really good friends of mine and um i don't remember if you uh do you recall uh Diana, Rachel, and Cinti. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Beautiful people, wonderful people. I loved spending time with them. Um, my partner and I got to go out and spend some good quality time. And it was just, it was very rejuvenating. That very awesome. needed. And then I slept like the dead and woke up at six <laughs> this morning. So, <laughs> you know, uh, which is for those uh, who are longtime listeners, you know, that's not my normal. So, um, 
rest has been something that I've been getting a lot more of, uh, especially since a couple weeks ago when I started really putting out for this new book. And I'm doing uh, between 500, 800 a night. Um, wow. Except for I'm on my days off. Uh, I've got 200 more to go today, and then I'll have my 500 word limit. But yeah, I've got about two weeks now worth of content where I've done at least 500 words. Wow, that's yeah. impressive. Well, thank you. I'm, what I'm hoping to do is have this damn book written by the time December rolls around. I would like to have it written <laughs> by, by Yule so that I can start editing it. There you go. Um, for those who don't know, I'm working on three books. Uh, one is The first one is a Basics of Heathen Spirit Work. The second one is Rune Spirit Work. And the third one is Advanced Spirit Work at this point. So, and why why struggle your way through writing one book when you can struggle your way through writing three? I I sat back and went. <laughs> I'm already at thirty thousand words with all the blog posts and stuff that I've collated, and this book isn't even half written. So it's it's probably it's going to probably have to be a three part. I was I was fooling myself thinking I could squish this into one. <laughs> like oh, nice. there, there ain't no way in fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're going into sufficient debt, so that's good. Very sorely needed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been working on. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, for anybody that's listening, uh, Caitlin is not with us tonight. Caitlin and her lovely family are out enjoying in the lake for this week holiday weekend, which I cannot blame them at all. We all need it. It's been a long year. And on the bright side, we're not stuck at Burning Man. Right? Did you see about right? that? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. And I laughed my ass off. It's like, oops. Just a bit. <laughs> like, how tone deaf can you be in the middle of a housing crisis to go and build a city in the middle of the desert, not check the forecast, <laughs> no pre-planning at all, just fuck it. We'll yeah. see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I don't think we've got anything to announce or anything that we want to throw out. You have, you don't have any classes or anything coming up anytime. Oh, uh, actually, I do. Uh, oh, awesome. Okay, glad I asked. Yeah, yeah, me too. So coming up, it is Ann Arbor Pagan Pride. Oh, that's right. It is that time of year. Yeah, it is that time of year. And l- give me five seconds, and I'm gonna pull up when that actually is getting into spooky season two yeah uh (laughs) september the 9th it's going to be saturday september the 9th and it's going to be on washtenaw community college's uh campus uh donations for uh the food pantry are welcome we are also welcome uh donations directly to ann arbor pagan pride and so our 2023 Pagan Pride schedule is actually up and on the a2paganpride.com. Uh, we open at 11 o'clock in the morning and we shut down at 6 p.m. And there are little 15, 30 minute breaks in between each class. Uh, each class lasts about 45 minutes. Yeah. And we have a wide range of different classes. And I'm actually going to be doing the main ritual, which is rooted in communities. Nice. nice. And I'm also going to be doing another workshop. Uh, digging the Dvergar, developing relationships with dwarves. Ooh, sweet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to both. 
if anybody has never been to Ann Arbor Pagan Pride, if you're not, uh, if you're within a, a decent driving distance, I encourage you to check it out because it's a nice location right there on the college campus. Good classes, vendors, lots of people to hang out with. It's a it's a nice little event. Yeah, last time I checked, we had 18 vendors for this, yeah. which yeah. is just wild to me. It's a perfect size too. It's not it really it's is. like it's not the it's not a super huge event, but then again, it's not a super small one either. It's right in that middle range. You're going to be able to find stuff that you're looking for, classes mm-hmm. that you're interested, people that you've been wanting to meet. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward yeah. to seeing people there. That's really cool. Well, with like that, I'd, I'd like to welcome our guest tonight. Chris Ashburn is a ancestral priestess who priestess who does readings and divination, a lot of ancestor work, and is a specialist in transitions and transformations. Chris, welcome to Around Grandfather Fire. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was looking forward to this because you know, Sarah and I we have talked a lot about. You know, obviously a lot of rituals have to do with transitions and we do Mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, I've talked a lot about ancestral work too. So I was always, you know, I'm always interested in hearing other people approaching it. And then you do readings for people too, that have a lot to do with their ancestral work and their own shadow and death work. So I was curious about how all that gets incorporated in too. So I'm really excited to have you on tonight. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm I'm ready. Like <laughs> this is my favorite topic. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So for for folks who don't know much about you, where yeah. can they find information on you? Where are you at? <sighs> I'm all over the place. I am all. I am all seeing all no. Um, I am uh, my dot com is Chris Ashburn, which that's a C R I S A S H B U R N. Um, and then I am also on YouTube. I actually started on YouTube. Um, I am on Patreon as of t- what yesterday. It is officially back open. I was there for three years and paused it, said to attend to some things, and now I'm back going. So that's there. Um, I am on TikTok. Like you can find me all over the place, but Excellent. predominantly every other week, I am on YouTube. I am consistently on Patreon now, and you can always find me on my dot com. Excellent. So with ancestor work, especially because that's, that's an area I have a deep amount of interest and curious to pick your brain on. What's the first thing you recommend for folks? Oh, well, usually, (laughs) usually it depends on what they're, they're struggling with because some people come and they are struggling with sort of this really big disconnect from trauma that's happened. And that's a little bit different than someone who's kind of like, I had a really good relationship with this member and they passed and now I'm trying to talk to them. It's a slightly different vibe. So the first thing is I would ask kind of what they're dealing with and then um, go from there. Now, if it's someone who is simply trying to talk to a loved one that they did have that relationship with already, um, usually... The answer is to uh, one, if it's relatively new or there's a lot of grief, it's to work with that first. Because sometimes what happens is you can be sort of, you know how with a hurricane, you can stand in the center and it's completely quiet. Yeah, until you have the rest of the wall. Yeah, but all that storm is going around you, right? Right. And so you'll be in that and then the storm around you is the grief and you're trying to communicate and you're thinking that nothing is talking, no one's talking back, 
Mm-hmm. But what's happening is that there's so much grief that you're in, you can't hear them. There's so much hurt, right? Gotcha. There's so much to carry that it's hard to listen. And so one of the first things is usually we address that. We talk about that, where they are with that, um, to try and work a bit with uh, perspective shifts there and sort of healing a bit through that so that they can be in sort of a, a true calm spot <laughs> to hear. Um, instead of kind of pulling into that center and not listening. Uh, with someone who has had a lot of trauma with blockages and things like that, uh, or perhaps uh, adoption stuff, um, that also is, is something that's along those lines. I usually will ask them how they feel about ancestors, and we start with what their definition of ancestor even is. Because that's pretty wild in itself, and it tends to be a better way to have a stepping stone up to working Mm -hmm. with ancestors when the word family has kind of been villainized or bastardized in a lot of their context. They don't really have a healthy version of that yet. So one way to do that is to find the other healthy ways that aren't through that lens, but are still ancestors. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds... Sounds kind of familiar there. Yeah, you sometimes have to find that person <laughs> that um, is a healthy starting off point within the, the ancestral mm-hmm. line. Or I don't know, Sarah and I, we kind of talked about before about how, like, sometimes depending on with cases of adoption and that sort of thing, you have to recognize yeah. that your ancestors aren't just your bloodline. They might, and and in real desperate cases, like if you just mm-hmm. have so they have nobody else. You might even be looking at, you know, a teacher or a mentor or somebody that was Absolutely. really powerful in your life that that yeah. acts as that touching off point for ancestor work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and not only that, um, there are people who were family, friends of family and stuff that become part of that as well. If you're welcomed in at some point, you are now family, right? And so that's just, that's part of it. You are now part of the hall. So just come on, grab a plate. Let's go. Right. (laughs) So um, they're part of that too. And I think sometimes that doesn't get thought about either the process or the possibility that that could be an option too. Um, You know, so yeah, teachers and and friends of the family and you know, that like aunt that wasn't actually your aunt, but was totally your aunt. Right. But when you went over her house and asked for something to drink, she said, you know where the cups are. That means you're in. That's the. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And even further than that, let's talk about the animals that we had growing up. Our pets who soothed us and comforted us and and their spirits. They're part of that, too. You know, so there's so many different options. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one to touch on because the like the pets and that sort of thing, like. A lot of people might be hesitant to make that your first go because, but like, and it might not be the main thing that, that you go forward with, with your, your ancestor work. But in my mind, I'm like, if that's where you start, if you had like the loyal dog growing up and you know, that dog wouldn't let Mm -hmm. any harm come to you. And then when other spirits are approaching and saying, Hey, we're an ancestor. If that dog is okay with them, they're probably okay. Exactly. Yeah. If that was your safe space, then start mm-hmm. with your safe space. Yep. And that's kind of the point of all of it is where was your safe space? Where is your safe space? If you don't know it and you don't have it within the term family, then let's find it. And then we grow from there. Then we can expand it, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
makes complete sense to me. How how do you have most people kind of begin that work? Do you have them start with a reading uh, or just do you talk about the you you talk about the term ancestor and what that means to them, but do you gradually go into a reading? Do you have them usually start with like an ancestor altar? What's your process look like? So um, I have two options. Usually there is a reading that I do an ancestral wisdom reading is what it used to be called. Now it's just an ancestral session because that's wordy. And <laughs> And it is something that I sort of step into the, I like to call it stepping into the the energetic tapestry of a person and like momentarily receiving their mail. (laughs) So I can see what messages are coming in that they're just not paying attention to perhaps, or what is being kind of repeated or, you know, like all of those thumbnails or, you know, those little dots, thumbtacks on the board with the string, you know, and seeing like how many, okay, well, look, you got a lot over here, so... Uh, clearly there are messages and you know then um about an hour ahead of time before i talk to the client i will set space and i just talk with them like the ancestors before i even talk to the person and spend an hour just sort of writing down things and pulling things i'll pull stones and incense and um we'll do cards automatic writing i also will feel physical things in my body a lot Mm. so i'll use that because i have certain uh, telltales in that, like, for instance, like grief is always right at the bottom of the throat on the chest. And it's a very like tight, restricted, jittery feeling. Um, so whenever I feel that a lot, I'm like, okay, so this is someone that's probably recent or it's very, very heavy for them still. <laughs> and, um, and you know, those kind of things. And so I'll, I'll write all those down and sort of compile it. And then I start, you know, by inviting that person in. And we talk about what I found. I tell them things that I've heard that the ancestors have told me to pass on. I tell them sort of the tapestry of everything I picked and why and those things and explain all the lines through the thumbtacks, you know. And um, and through that, usually what happens is there's sort of this emotional mm, unraveling, like that little piece in the sweater that just need to be tugged just a bit and then it all pours out. And it is in a very cathartic way, it pours out. Like it just needed to be released somewhere. And a lot of times with this kind of work, with that grief and such, there is this sense of it's too heavy to put down because it's too heavy for people. People aren't, you know, ready to deal with this. I am a burden with this, so I can't talk about it. And in that space, that's specifically what it's for. So, you know, I tell people like, look, if you get emotional during this, that's good. That means like, that's fine. That That's what you should be doing if you want to do that. If you feel that, then do it. <laughs> um, it's a safe space to do it. But usually we start with something like that to where we can see what that general message is, what's going on. And I essentially am like a mediator between and um, a energy worker at the same time, <laughs> pretty much. And so it's kind of a jumble of things that I have just developed over the years of doing what I do. And it became an ancestral session. And that's one of the first places people usually start is because they know that they want to work with them, but they maybe don't know how, or they don't know what they're trying to uh, be told, or, you know, to start. And through that is how we kind of figure out, okay, so this is what's going on. This is the message. And then I will give ways to work with that. Uh, sometimes it is simple. It, it is as simple as, hey, throughout the day, speak to them. It doesn't matter where you are. 
You are that altar. You are them literally, like they're in you. Speak to them. Just speak to them. And it's okay if you don't hear them back yet. Just know that they're there and listening, you know? And then eventually that will sort of start to open up. You'll get a little more comfortable. And then you go from there. Uh, For some people, they are very physical. So altars and things do work. Um, Stones. uh, I often will start with actually a shrine more so because I think an altar implies a lot more work being done there. And I think that can bring a lot of pressure through responsibility to things when people are already feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. So I tend to like to start with like a shrine. Like, do you have pictures? Do you have a candle? Do you have some incense? Do you have, do you, do you just set a picture of grandma up and just like have coffee with her? You know, um, something very small, but it is a ritual. It's simple. It's something you can still do. Um, and it is something maybe that you even would have shared with her in life. And, uh, and that kind of takes the sort of buildup out of it that a lot of people keep themselves from doing things due to the buildup. You know, Um, and then the other thing is I do have an ancestral 101 course and a 102, um, and that does sort of go more into sort of the breakdown of what the ancestor is as a definition. I go back in the etymology of things. I talk about uh, the key hominid women and sort of like this, like the genealogy line and stuff and and how like really, really, where do we draw the line on that? There are different kinds of ancestors. Absolutely. I will never argue that. But ancestor in itself just means gone before. Ante sedere. That's it. And then if you want to get into time and get all wibbly wobbly, what is even before? Are we our own ancestors? So there's a lot to be said there for playing around with things when people are coming into it in this very sort of black and white um, way of like seeing what family is and what their support system is. Uh, there are so many options. And, and that is two of the ways that people start. Um, the, the course allows them to kind of do it at their own pace. Mm-hmm. And I've had several people say to me, like they thought that when they started it, they were going to do it like real quick and go through, like breeze through. They're like, oh, this will be simple. And then they were like, it's got to sink in. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot uh, in it and it takes time to kind of sink in. But one of the key things for me is it's about the thought process. I'm not here to teach anybody as a mentor about your correspondence list. I'm not doing a pop quiz on paper. What I want is for you to understand the thought process of things. I want you to know in the heart, not know in the head. The head has its place, but without this, without the heart, you don't get it. It doesn't sink in, at least for me. Yeah. So that's typically how I teach, and that's usually where I start people. I appreciate that. That's It's hard because, you know, like a lot of people here, I, I've heard it, and I've probably said it a few times you need to do ancestor work well what does that actually look like for a lot of people it's a very daunting thing i was just even i I like the phrasing that you use too i was just looking at your youtube channel and like even one of the couple of the titles that were interesting was getting out of a black and white view and what to do about conflicting views those were those seem like pretty darn helpful things as well yeah yeah i mean i feel like it can be very easy to sort of see in the black and white and they have their modes, they have their gifts like everything does. But 
uh, with ancestors, particularly dealing with that, there is a lot of gray. Humans, you know? <laughs> so right. Um, right. with that, there are people who have both good and bad qualities and things like that. And it's like, you know, when people are talking about bringing in ancestors to help them and stuff i'm like okay well like was your one uncle a really cheesy car salesman sorry to anyone who's a car salesman but like i hope you're not cheesy <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyone who was like a really cheesy car salesman or something and uh and you know you're trying to make a big pitch on something you talk to that ancestor you know bring him in yeah yeah uh, he may not be good for other things perhaps he was not the most reliable so you know if you are trying to aim for consistency on something, probably not the one you want to call. <laughs> but if you want to make a good sales yeah. pitch, that's who you're talking to, right? Um, right. There are... I guess it even, even if you look at it on a human spectrum, like yeah. in, in reality, right here, right now, this week, I could be a very good ancestor on Tuesday because I help somebody out. But on Wednesday, I'm even having a, a shit day i might be a horrible ancestor yeah. on wednesday that doesn't mean i yep. mean there's a lot of consistency also with humans so yeah no there isn't and i think that's you know we're complex <laughs> um exactly. and so you know therefore the working is complex too i think the the ancestral work is both to simultaneously realize that we feed and heal them but also that they need healing and being fed um and that maybe in some areas they've fed a little too much on things they shouldn't have. <laughs> and we are actively, as the living ancestor, what I like to call it, choosing to not feed on certain things and redirect our energy to something else. You know, and that's sort of just evolution. Is learning what works better for all of us. I think it's kind of a goofy notion that, that, one, that. that one ancestor should be everything to us, right? It's kind of, mm -hmm. it's kind of not how human beings work. It's not really how humanity as an aggregate works. Like why, yeah. why would you put that undue pressure, not only on you, but like on your family line to provide you every little thing, like, right. you know, uh, uncle John might've been an excellent carpenter, but heck, couldn't hack it as an electrician. If you tried, you know, um, right. I, I'm not yeah. going to well, go to my uncle, say Joe, if, he was the family electrician. If I need a carpentry job, either like mm -hmm. we all have different shoddy skills. carpet jobs, right? Right. We all have different skills and talents, and and I think the the notion that we have to be paragons, whether of a craft or of virtue, even to be useful to our descendants, is an unfortunate trap that people can fall into. Yes. And honestly, also, I have so many ancestors that come through in readings and say, as cautionary tales, don't do what I did. Do not do these things. Take me as a lesson to not <laughs> go that way. Um, so they also will oftentimes openly admit <laughs> that that was not their forte. And please don't make it yours. <laughs> you know? Yep. Uh, so yeah, but I think also that ties into sort of this culture of making saints of the dead um, that often happens sort of just in society as a whole. It's like a, you, you never speak ill of the dead because they'll come get you. Right. And that has, that has really been more like Victorian times kind of thing coming down. But uh, that I think is part of that that happens is this whole idea that like, 
well, they're dead now, so they're like, you know, angels, purely. And, you know. No. <laughs> I think even even for saints, you, I mean, you can definitely, I certainly count the ancestor that gave me part of my name uh, for my confirmation as one of my ancestors. And he had his moments. Like people forget St. Francis de Assisi before he went off and became a monk, went to war, uh, wielded a, a weapon of some kind, maybe a sword because he came from a wealthy merchant family. And, you know, might have done some fucked up shit while he was at war. And people yeah. do not like to think about their saints in that fashion because, damn, they're human. They're not just these abstract divine yeah. figures anymore. Yeah. I think we tend to do that with a lot of things. I mean, even um, spiritual leaders and gurus and, you know, they, like the, like we tend to sort of pedestal. Um, and while I understand it in one aspect because of the reverence for what they do, uh, there is also this level of like, yes, but why can't they also be human? Why can't they do amazing things and be human? Why can human not be that powerful? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's interesting when when you consider um, something that the literature for, for, for shamanic folks points out. Well, these folks are charlatans. You know, they use trickery. They use deceit. Sometimes I think that uh, something that our, our interview with David Sheep pointed out was that uh, not all of these shamans are like paragons of virtue. Some of them are outright bastards. And sometimes yeah. you don't need a paragon of virtue. You need a bastard to get shit done. Yeah, true. Uh, when I was reading his, his book on North Asian shamanism, one of the things that was pointed out was that those who are called black hat shamans are the shamans that are willing to do some rough, horrible shit to see things done. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the white or yellow hats, the white or yellow hats are people that generally speaking won't do curse work, won't do harmful magic. Mm -hmm. Black hats will do whatever the fuck needs to be done to get things done. And I, just as you wouldn't expect Uncle Joe to teach you how to shingle a roof, you also probably, if you never saw combat, you wouldn't ask him, hey, how do I handle this asshole? Yeah. You know, and you may not want your combat veterans giving you advice on how to handle an asshole at work because their, their advice might be just to take him out back and shoot his ass. <laughs> Better ask that HR ancestor instead. Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Maybe that one. <laughs> Or the politician or something. Like someone who's, you know, good at smoothing. And <laughs> yeah, it, but it's, yeah. So many of these ancestral things that show up. And Jim's, Jim's seen some of this shit. So I, I'm sitting here giggling at him across the way. Because he's seen some <laughs> of these things pop up in readings before. Yeah. Where an ancestor will be like, that's not the issue. The issue's over here, and you're just oh, hyper-focusing yeah. over here, because that's what you want to focus on. Because sometimes, like, our ancestors can be accurate and total pricks at the same time, and oh. accurately diagnose <laughs> where we are, because they've been there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes, furthermore, that's what's needed to get through. Yep. 
you know, um, whenever I do them, uh, I do have people worry sometimes about people who are unwanted coming through. Um, and, you know, when I cast circle, when I do space, because uh, I don't actually cast circle, I do like sacred space anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I define it as the enlightened ancestors, the healing ancestors and healed ancestors, those who are seeking to better themselves in the line in a healthy form, period. Um, mm-hmm. And I specify that last part because you can be healing and be trying to take shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> good point. <laughs> um, Very good point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there are those that come through and I've even had to be like, look, this is really blunt and I'm sorry ahead of time. If it, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to say it though. Cause I say what I get and they're like, Oh yeah. Ouch. But yeah, I need it. Like usually that ancestor speaks that language of that family. You know what I mean? And that's just how they communicate. That's how they need that message to come through. Um, you know, some people work with, uh, Kuan Yin and some people get hit over the head with Hecate. Like it's a different vibe, you know? <laughs> Fitbit. <Yep>. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I also saw that you do, uh, um, death midwifery too. How, how connected is that? Is the ancestor work? Is that a smooth transition from one to the other? Are yeah. they never connected? How, how, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So death midwifery is something that I got trained for after my father died. I was already interested in it, but I was like, I don't know if I'd be the type for that. <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm the bedside tending type. <laughs> and um, and I was proved very wrong because I asked that question out loud, you know, right? I made that judgment and then the, the ancestors were like, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> so... <laughs> I watched, and um, I ended up becoming uh, a death midwife uh, through Angie Buchanan. And um, and what that has done for my work, honestly, is give me a lot of perspective and foundation with the entire attitude towards death in general. Um, with death, death midwifery, one of the things that they teach you is, you know, death is not an emergency. Nothing needs to be fixed with it. It simply is and is unfolding, right? And so, like, if you have someone pass and you get the call to come tend the bodies, which I guess back up here, for those who don't know what death midwifery is, (laughs) death midwifery (laughs) is also uh, called death doula. Being a death doula is also that. And um, there some people who argue about the terminology, but either way, same shit. And um, what you are is essentially a companion and a liaison to the person who is dying and their family uh, secondary. Usually it's to the person first. And uh, you are kind of a stone between the medical and the funeral industry. There are things that both can do and they are wonderful and absolutely needed. And then there's sort of this middle ground, which are the death midwives. And um, we can do a lot of things. It depends on the state we're in and the rules that we are allowed to do things with. Um, some you can't really touch the body. So a lot of us don't do anything postmortem. 
Um, and then some states you can. And in those states, often we will do, um, like we'll help facilitate home vigils and things like that. Uh, so we are non-denominational. So any faith, any of that. And um, we basically are there to assist how we can and to be the person in between who is there that is, you know, if this person is passing away and they don't want to talk to their family about the fact that they are dying, but they need to talk to somebody. Hi, how you doing? I'm that person. Um, and this idea of it not being an emergency, it's not something you fix. It just simply is, and it is the natural process of things. Um, and just holding space for that and letting people process in their own time how you can and helping out how you can uh, is sort of the core of that. And also, you know, we often will provide information and things. So like point you to funeral homes that are good or directors that we know that might be very good or um, working with hospice and things like that. You know, we're, we're also good at giving information um, because we've had to be in that spot. Right. Uh, but the predominant thing is companionship. The predominant thing is holding a phone because you can't hold it up yourself, but you need to call your son who's many states away and have those last words with him, whatever they are, right? And so I'll hold the phone, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that's what it is. So then now with the work that I do, I already um, was very much raised in sort of a pagan Christian household. My mother is pagan. My father was Christian. And so I already had a lot of ritual work and stuff. And I did grow up with, you know, uh, full moon, new moon drummings where we would drum to the ancestors. And as a matter of fact, that ritual is still continued because it's what I call a death tent now in my practice. Um, and those things were already kind of like natural to me. The idea of sort of talking to the ancestors and being in this sort of like, yeah, of course people die. And like, that's part of it. My mom also was, um, uh, is a retired LPN from a, uh, like a nursing home. So I grew up with the bus dropping me off at nursing homes where one day I'd show up and just Carol wasn't there. Carol passed on. <laughs> and so from a very young age, I remember being very curious and very like soaked into all of those stories that they would share and remembering like, I need to remember all of these because these are important. These need to be passed on. No one's listening and I need to keep these. And in that element, death midwifery came after my father's death. And I was like, there's no one listening to the stories, or at least not enough. And so part of it that transforms over, like transitions over into the work that I do now is listening to the stories, both sides, and sort of being uh, that middle ground so that people can do that, who can have those moments. I have my own story with some of that and not uh, having certain stories that I wish had been passed on and um and i understand that and i've had to go to the astral to get them so um i understand being in that predicament and uh as a death midwife even more so and so that's one of the main ways that it transfers and then also just the attitude of it the fact that death is a natural occurrence and that you know there is sort of this desanitation to sanitization of 
uh, death where like we don't want to see the rot, we don't want to see those things, we want to remember them again, that pristine sort of almost saint thing. And I think that, you know, for people that it works for, then go you. But I think other people, it's hard to process when that's the situation. You don't really see and fully take in the fact that that is happening. And, um, and I think ancestor work one helps with that. And also this sort of just bringing that attitude into the work that I do into the rituals and the sessions and such of this isn't an emergency. We can just set with this, you know, and the moment you do that, everything comes in clear. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Do you do like any of the psychopomp sort of aspects too, or like helping the spirit cross over? Yes. So I have in the past uh, been led to do that. It isn't something that is predominant. It's not my main one, mm -hmm. um, but I have, I have done that. Yes. I am usually more so assisting the dead and speaking to the living or the living in finding their dead and hearing them. Gotcha. I'm usually more so that mm -hmm. as opposed to helping the dead cross over to where they need to be. Um, I appreciate that work and I've done it a few times, but predominantly I am more of a messenger and mm -hmm. a healer in those sense. Yeah. This is, it's really nice. Unbeknownst to you, Chris, you've ended up in a really neat, uh, trio of episodes that we're doing and i don't know i think it's because it's coming up on on spooky season or whatever our last episode was about funerary rites and practices and and yes, taking care I of the body now now we have your episode here with dealing with some of the ancestor work and the the death doula type work and our next episode is all about dealing with grief. So you're part of a very powerful trio of episodes that we're having right in a row. And I'm, I'm really excited about this. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the work that you're doing so much because that transition, as we found out from the last episode with, uh, with Bone Dust Woman, is that transition is really hard for a lot of people. Our society doesn't like looking at it. We don't like talking about it. And, and we certainly you know, the average person is going to have trouble sitting by someone's bedside when they go through that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and it is something that I, I get again, like the, like the, the altar conversation earlier, where it's like the big buildup makes it worse than it. I think sometimes the buildup to that makes it worse than when you realize you're actually just like sitting there and being present, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> Yeah. And then and then it suddenly becomes sort of the most natural thing to do, at least for myself, uh, because, of course, of course, someone would sit there and have this conversation with you. Why wouldn't they? Um, so, yeah, I, I think just we are uh, dealing with very different ideas around death. Um, and I'm really, really excited to see more conversations around uh, our attitude to that. And, and I was actually listening to the podcast that you did with Bone Dust Woman uh, just, I think it's day before yesterday. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I dig her as well. And, uh, and I looked up her, her stuff and am looking through things. Um, but yeah, I, I liked a lot of what she had to say about the fact that uh, there is something that is special about 
rotting back into the earth, not being afraid to do that, that natural process. And I think that also speaks to what I was saying about like, no, it just simply is and transition is, you know, how that works. I mean, the the main goddess that I work with is hell. Change is necessary. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, that's, that's the one constant and it's coming regardless. So why not get to know it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. And, and I don't know, I, I hope this isn't too blunt of an observation for people, but it strikes me that in my own life, when I've had an ancestor or a loved one that was, was getting ready to transition over, it was really hard, like you said, to get in that mindset of all I really need to do is sit there and, and listen and hold space. But I realized when you were saying that, that that is something cultural in some way or another. It was ingrained in me because instinctually, if I were to have a pet that was close mm-hmm. to passing, I had no problem just laying down on the floor next to him, talking to him and just being there. Yet somehow right. it's, a, it's a weird thing that that got instilled in me somewhere that that is a difficult thing to do with a human. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I, I never really would have thought about that before. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and we have a very adverse reaction to sort of de- dead human bodies. Like we really mm-hmm. do. Um, I mean, horror movies and stuff use it a lot for those those reasons. And I think it might have something to do with like the Uncanny Valley situation. Um, but also it is sort of, it's facing our own mortality too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little harder to do for that. I mean, the dog we loved very much and we care for that dog, um, but we are not that dog, right? And right. so it's a little more difficult i think in that element but also yeah society definitely has sort of a protocol for that our protocol for like a dog we don't really have that we kind of decide it within our own households what we're going to do for that you know um whereas with humans nowadays there's sort of a set thing um that's expected and so that's probably also part of it too you know, probably also the fact that a lot of times when those things are happening, they're happening in a, like a hospital situation or some other mm-hmm. situation where it's hard to be comfortable and just be where. Right. I don't know. I think there's an unspoken thing that's happening here, too, especially when you're talking about the difference between pets and humans in that, generally speaking, we choose when our pets die. True. That transition that's is oftentimes something we choose. Mm-hmm. There is a degree of control over it. There's a degree of deliberation and care that goes into making that choice. And for the most part, we don't get that with our fellow human beings because euthanasia is something that is outlawed in this country for Mm. the most part. Mm -hmm. Uh, So is that, is that an aspect that gets into our, why part of why it's scary then is because of that lack of control you think? I think that's part of it. I think the other part and the reason why death is so terrifying is because you get to watch a person break down. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost two people in the last year, my grandfather and my father-in-law. And 
I know that that is not how either one of them would have chosen to die. And the process that I watched my father-in-law go through was to be blunt about it because it was cancer that took him fucking painful. Uh, This was a man who busted his ass day in, day out, who when he was sick and getting bored staying at home would repaint the fucking walls. This was laying in a hospital bed and having his organs fail on him was not the way he would have chose to go on to have gone. He probably would have, if he had had the option, he probably would have chose a different path, but he didn't have it. Um, mercifully he did pass in his sleep and he passed with his wife right there with him. And we recalled moments after, and we got to celebrate his life with a, what amounted to a miniature wake, which was very cool. Um, the transition he went through was rapid in its deterioration, and his quality of life was horrific before the end. Not something I'd wish on many people. Mm-hmm. We don't do that to our pets generally. So th- I think there's also this yeah. aspect of we see the, the, the horrific nature of the dying process. It's not even the person being dead. It's yeah. this person literally doesn't look anything like I remember. Uh, you yeah. know, yeah. this person has clearly pain lines etched in their face. You know, or this person has gone through a really rough transition, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, in my father-in-law's case, like I said, he went into sleep. He was really peaceful, but that doesn't happen for a lot of folks in his situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think to a degree, part of why we relate to death so lousy in our modern day and age is we really generally don't choose the means by which we go out, and. I think that there's there's control and there's power there, but there's also, I think that there is something deeply terrifying about a lack of choice in in how you live in your final moments mm-hmm. that bothers people on a very deep level. And I, I think that rightly so, especially for a country that screams freedom, 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 and this is the one arena that you're going to deny me choice. Well, I mean... With our Supreme Court clearly not just here now, but yet another arena where where freedom, freedom, freedom means not a fucking thing. Okay, sure, but then we approach death as though it's an enemy because that's how our health care system treats it. Instead of saying, "Okay, there's literally nothing else that we can do at this point. Do you want to transition?" It's keep this fucker alive at every cost is the default you you have to do a ton of paperwork relative to dying of natural causes in order for them not to bring you back so and also there's the switch over of it goes from quantity of life to quality of life exactly then it is about it's 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 you know you are going to die absolutely this is you know assured 
mm-hmm. what we can do for you is try to make you as comfortable as possible. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to, to, to harsh on this too much or harp on it too much, but I, I think it's a really important factor for how we approach death in this country. And I, I think agree. it's part of why we carry so much trauma around it yes. because a lot of the factors that are in other death choices are simply not ones that are ours to make anymore. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very good insight. I kind of got to it in a, in a, in a roundabout way, but I'm glad I brought it up so you guys could expand on that. Cause I think that was important information. That was important to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Yes. I think too, that, one of the things that really struck me with having an appreciation and understanding of the death process itself, I worked in a funeral home and a lot of what you and other guests have talked about with, with death doula and death work in general has been stuff that I've in some capacity or another have had to fill in because they don't teach pastors and priests how to do this shit. Like, the counseling in that regard is really fucking lacking. You get occasionally you get a good one, but they're, they're training for a lot of these guys. They do not know how to handle death. They give you a lot of platitudes and a lot of it sounds really fucking hollow. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That whole, like, well, you lived a good life or well, like this whole sort of, right. We'll put flowers on it and it'll, it, you know, it'll be better. (laughs) Uh, we'll we'll throw a prayer on it, you know. <laughs> um, now I was blessed by uh, Angie Buchanan, my my death midwife teacher, being also a priestess, uh, a pagan priestess, and um, and that is you know that whole line that she came from with hers is, and uh, and so when we had classes, it was held in sacred space. There was an altar for the beloved dead at all times up during the classes. Um, it was very much a death space, if you will, the whole time. Um, just to acclimate us, to get us used to knowing it and befriending it and like working within it. And and sort of, you know, what you were talking about of like, there, there really isn't a lot of training with that. Um, or even, you know, Jim, you brought up like psychopomp work. Even with that, only in certain areas, certain cultures with those things, you will find. Um, and others, no mention of it at all. When they die, they're gone. We have a, we, we do a prayer and then that's it. And it's all about living though. And, um, and it just feels, it has always felt unbalanced. Because we're not the priests and priestess, the ones who were the facilitators, the healers, the, the guides. You know, how are we supposed to guide and facilitate and heal through one of the biggest transitions that people naturally go through, whether it is abrupt or not? Like, that's just that humans are going to die. You know, honestly, you know? that that particular verbiage always has kind of made my teeth itch on dying of natural causes. All causes of death are yeah. natural. That And that's what I meant by that, really, is like this idea that, or my, another one of my little like favorites where I'm like, hmm, interesting, is before their time. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm pretty sure they time. arrived exactly when they fucking meant to. I, I'm pretty sure that happened like on time, 
I mean, I'm not like the timekeeper, but you know, uh, <laughs> but um, I get the sentiment behind it, right? I get the sentiment there and why it's being said, and I can understand that. But every time I hear those two things, yeah, I do go. But but do we hear what we're saying? Uh, just like the phrase in this in Death Mover Free is one that I was taught about, never even thought about, but I was angry after my dad died and people would say it to me. Which is, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm. Think about the wording of that. I'm sorry to hear that. Not, you know, I feel bad for your loss. I empathize with you. Um, you know, how can I help even would be helpful with that. But it is even something dead generic, please pardon the pun. Yeah, like even something (laughs) I'm sorry to I'm sorry that that you're going through that is much more empathetic than I'm sorry to hear that. Holy shit. I'm sorry to hear that is like, please don't tell me this shit. (laughs) You know, like yeah, absolutely. Um let me center myself in your grief. Sorry sometimes. Yes, and even I'm sorry sometimes does that, right? And and we and that's an issue that we have culturally as well of like we don't know anymore what to say. <laughs> we kind of just um struggle with it and we say something like I'm sorry. Well, if you tell people it's about fucking or, time they get really pissed you know? off. <laughs> well, true, true. I feel like that's jumping to the other extreme. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that we just we aren't really. There's a lot of sort of the platitudes that are given, and it's tradition, and so we say them, but we're not necessarily thinking about the words we're saying sometimes. And to someone who is in the throes of that they're thinking about the words yeah yeah and it's hard to be sort of considerate of that and i understand that because you're not in that space at that time um but things like that were things that we were taught to to think about is like well how do we phrase this what actually is the phrasing and what is actually helpful usually Mm -hmm. things that are helpful are things like can I drop off groceries? Can I mow your lawn? Can I take out your trash? Um, can I, you know, I, we, we went out to eat tonight and we were thinking of you, so we brought you something. You know what I mean? Like they're very physical, immediate needs that when someone is grieving, it's hard to do. And as a society, we don't really have a lot of setup for that. And that's something that I really liked about Bondus Woman mentioning that her funerary services would actually go to the house and check in on or call the person, um, you know, it like up to like a year even or more after uh, that person's loved one had died. And I love that because that is something we need more of. We need more of a support system there where people don't feel alienated by their grief. They feel supported in it. Yeah, I could. It, it strikes me that could there also be a factor there that our our social networks are so wide now Having mm-hmm. because like I might know somebody casually online, so what do I say to them when they're not close enough? I can't get them groceries. I can't mow their lawn. I couldn't ah. go over and sit with them, and I might not even be inclined to even if they are close because we don't have that close of a relationship. But our social network is large enough now where we've interacted. How do we handle those situations? Oh, well, I mean, first of all, you can get them groceries. It's called delivery. <laughs> Fair, and you absolutely can do it. <laughs> 
Um, and you can even get them things that are like sweet treats and things and stuff that are feel goods. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, like a full grocery order. It could even be getting them flowers and a cake or something like, you know, whatever you want. Basics, etc. So that is possible. But also, it is checking in on them. It is messaging them pointedly and saying, how are you doing today? Do you need anything? Do you need to talk? I'm here if you need me. Um, how's it going? Uh, I saw this thing today and it made me laugh. I'm going to share it with you. Right? Because also we don't want to pointedly just make it like, I'm here for you if you need me. Like, <laughs> just like zone in on them. Because they may not want to talk about it. They may actually want a reprieve from it and something light. So, hey, here's a funny meme. Hey, here's this thing that made me laugh. Hey, I saw this and thought of you. I mean, you also, know, like, there are also ways that you can help. Saying to a person, you know, how can I help you sometimes is, yes. especially if you're in the middle of grief, is just too much decision making. Especially if they're already dealing with stress, it can lead to to uh, decision fatigue and executive dysfunction mm-hmm. because they're already dealing with all that shit. And you're putting right. another decision on top of that. Which is why I say it doesn't have to be a whole thing of groceries, for instance, mm-hmm. just get them some treats. You know what I mean? Like they don't have to make those decisions. As a matter of fact, sometimes just listening to them and checking in with them, you'll find the things they need because they'll talk to you about it. And they won't expect you to even do it. <laughs> and then yep. you'll be okay, well, I know now from talking to them that this is something they're missing, or this is something they're thinking of, or this is something that might help them because this is stressing them out on top of the other stuff. If I have a means to do those things or help with those things or even hold space for those things in a conversation, that's what I'm going to do. I wanted to ask and you about so, something, uh, but please yeah. finish your thought before we switch tracks because this is a, a bit of a derailment. Oh, <laughs> Way in the other direction? Okay. Uh, no, I think that was pretty much it. Is like, it, it doesn't have to be this physical doing thing. It could also be the act of, again, existing with them and letting them kind of be the guide of what they need. Um, mm-hmm. And even if they can't say that, just being present with them a lot of times mm-hmm. and, like, even if they're, like, grumpy and they need to vent, let them vent, you know? Like, let Absolutely. them get it out. Uh, and that also is helping. So the thing that I wanted to ask about was earlier you mentioned about working with people in a very basic way of getting them into doing shrine work. So what do you advise for people to do when they've had a loss and the person has transitioned? What do you recommend? Uh, In my own case, I recommend people wait a year before putting their picture on anything or doing anything with them to let them get used to being dead. But do you have a different process? Do you have things that you recommend people do, et cetera? Yeah. um, So if it's something that's really, really recent, uh, then a candle vigil uh, for about a week or so or less, depending on how you feel with that, um, is usually something that I would suggest if it's like very, very fresh. Just not only in the sense of helping with the sentiment to guide that spirit to where they need to be, but also you, because when a loved one dies, part of us dies with them, I believe. And so, or like even the, the idea of what we thought we would be and, and bone this woman touched on that a bit too, actually. Um, and so there is this also lighting a candle for that part of you as well in that simultaneously. 
Um, and so it's sort of this honoring this shift in this process and sort of putting light on it, almost like uh, the hermit card, right? And going down that path forward. Um, and so that would be one of the things. Um, another thing is, is I am native and I'm native and white. I am Plymouth Rock. Hi, guys. And <laughs> um, and one of the things for me was I shaved my hair. Um, and anytime I deal with a loss, one of my ritual ways of doing it culturally is to shave my hair. Because hair is very sacred. It's how you... Um, it's it's like your intuition. It's it's how you feel the earth, right? It's your connection. It absorbs many things. That's why we braid it. Um, and so I will shave. Um, I actually shaved it into a death hawk. It was long, long, long. Like I could sit on it, and I shaved it into a death hawk after my dad died, uh, and kept it that way for a little while. And now it's shaved again because I just went out uh, through a big life change. No one died. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> Yep. Uh, that is another thing is like, I would ask them, Hey, do you have cultural traditions as well? And, and, you know, perhaps if you don't know to look into those, are mm -hmm. those things within that, within the ancestor that passed, you know, and also you and et cetera, like, are those things within your culture, uh, that are specific practices to that, that you could use to honor that passing and the mourning that's taking process. And that would be one of those things. Shrines. Um, so with them, I don't necessarily do a year because I've seen some people process super fast. <laughs> That's fair. But I've also seen some people take a long time. <laughs> and um, I think that it depends on the ancestor for me. Mm -hmm. um, and also the, usually it depends on them and like how they were prepared to go or if they were ready or, you know, how they're doing mm -hmm. uh, basically coming to, tr to like, what is it coming to to like make truth with it like to see it as the truth and like this is you know accept that reality um so that's part of it but usually i would at least wait like a couple months um and then also that's when i start talking about their grief in that hurricane scenario where you know how loud is that mm -hmm. because if it is too loud you won't hear them anyway and what's going to happen is when they try to speak to you it's what we call like what i call the ancestor nightmares start which is where like they start trying to talk to you in your dreams but you ain't ready because you have not processed that they are dead fully you're still in the denial phase and they're trying to tell you something like, Oh, I'm okay. It's fine. And then it turns into a weird black hole sun video where everything goes melty because you are completely rejecting it. <laughs> Even though you want to talk to them really bad, you have not made peace with the fact that they are dead. And so everything gets distorted. And so th that's one of those signs too. It's like, okay, well maybe step back. <laughs> <laughs> from the shrine for a little bit um, and give some space for yourself and honoring that part of you that died, then we can talk to them. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. I like that's a so really I guess good insight. I more so just like, yeah, I guess I more so just look at like sort of the symptoms that are showing and then judge it through that. As opposed to a set length of time sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. 
That's interesting. I wonder how how often do you find people have those ancestral nightmare type scenarios, especially in our society, the way we have difficulty processing sometimes? You know, quite a few, uh, surprisingly. It's not every single person, of course, but it is. it has been reoccurring. Uh, since I started really officially doing this work. And even since um, I've talked about it on, on YouTube and stuff several times, and I'll always get comments or someone in the live chat that's like, holy shit, that's what that was? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I I don't think I've run know. across that concept before, but it makes absolute sense that if they're trying to to contact you, but you haven't fully processed or even partially processed, or if, if you're not ready for it, that that could come off mm-hmm. very nightmarish. I, and I had never thought yeah. about that before. It even makes me honestly question a little bit some of the concept of hungry ghosts that we mm. hear about so often, because now I have to think about, man, do I really, would I have to look into that situation a little bit further? Because was this really a hungry ghost or was this just a spirit that was trying to make contact? And I wasn't ready, and it was a nightmare because of my own grief. That's an interesting question. Yeah. You know, that's something I think a lot of people uh, don't often look at either, because, I mean, it's so easy to not do that, right? But uh, we are also responsible for the energy we bring to that interaction. And uh, and sometimes, yeah, we can be blocked without even knowing it, Um which is another reason, you know, earlier I was talking about like people who have a lot of trauma with the word family and like warming up and finding different ways first, because if you go directly into it with human ancestors, that's where it's going to head. It's going to head right there immediately. And they're going to be like, I can't do ancestor work. This doesn't work. I'm terrified. Or, or like, you know, they came to me in my dreams or they, they're messing with me or I don't feel safe. And like, yes, of course, because, you know, some of them absolutely are messed up. <laughs> but also sometimes our own fear can shape things into uh, other stuff as well, right? And into being a threat. And uh, and so that's why, you know, you start on the peripheral <laughs> first. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very easy to be like, oh, it's them. But sometimes it's us. Yeah. Well, I think to me, it just signals that like when you're helping someone with ancestor work or if you're doing your own ancestor work that this is one more question that you could throw into the mix when it comes to things like introspection and meditation and divination which seems really mm-hmm. like that's like i said i think i think you might be the first one i've ever heard talk about that but it seems to me that throwing that into your questioning and divination could make a huge difference for the outcomes that some people are experiencing and the and the time frames they can experience them in I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I think that uh, people are way too eager to dispense with the culture that they grow up around as an influencing factor. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I have had readings where, is this a God trying to get a hold of me? Is this a spirit? Like, yes, technically it is, but it's a dead relative and they just want your attention. Well, why am I thrashing in my mm-hmm. sleep? Well, because you don't want to hear what they have to say. You're fighting with it. You're literally Bingo. physically fighting with the message. I, I mean, you like I like I, it, it's so funny. Like we we've, we've seen these fielded questions before, and you and I have tag teamed on them. And it's so funny 
when people like get this jaw drop of I'm the problem, like, yeah, your dead relatives fine. You just don't want to hear him fucking talk. Um, to the point where I'd get it often enough where I damn near threatened to make a placard that says, do, do you do ancestor work? If not come back and then get divination done because inevitably <laughs> ancestor shit would crop up. Um, yes. I did a, I did a, uh, to a series of readings at a shop, uh, Cocapelli's corner for a psychic fair. They had, it was my first psychic fair. And I swear to you, the whole, eight hours that I spent sitting in that chair, I would say about 90% of my work was please talk with your fucking ancestors. (laughs) And well, I've had these, these deep seated issues and, and all this. Okay, great. Your ancestors want to talk. That's what that's about. Well, I suppose we shouldn't be shocked to a certain degree. I mean, you could be an 80-year-old man and sit down with a therapist and find out you still got mom or dad issues. I mean, why the hell right. should we, we should not be surprised that ancestor problems and issues creep up so often in in our spiritual work. Yeah. And I'm being I'm being a little tongue in cheek because it wasn't all just issues. It was also right, like right. like, hey, you know, there's a, a problem that your ancestor wants to help with, and because mm-hmm. of your attitude. It's really <laughs> limiting their desire. Uh, I've had a yeah. I, I had a couple of clients where it's like you got to really check your attitude because if you want your ancestors help on this and you say you do, you got to do it in a way that they approve of. Otherwise, it isn't going to fucking work. Right. So to a certain degree, we have to bend for our ancestors. Absolutely. You know that's an interesting note too. Is we have to bend for our ancestors. So like. There is a lot of like ancestral worship, ancestral veneration and that kind of thing. And in that, it does sort of put the ancestors center in terms of us asking them for things and stuff like that. But we are also center of that because we are part of that chain. Yeah. And so therefore, we have a responsibility as well. And if you are ancestor working and you're not thinking about your responsibility as part of that chain, you ain't ancestor working. I'm sorry. Right. Well, and I mean, like, like it, it's never so it. simple. Right. Because like the example you guys were given earlier with carpenters Mm -hmm. and electricians and stuff, let's say you've got an issue with income or finance. And so you're asking your ancestors for help. Yes. Grandfather was a banker. He's going to be able to help us out. But you haven't first challenged your own fears and misconceptions about money. There's no way that's going to work like you think it's going to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like if if, if you might, that's one of those things where you... It's not your ancestor's fault. And to some degree, it's not your fault, but it's just something that you have to resolve to make that ancestor work effective. Mm-hmm. In the Ancestor 101 course that I have, there's a whole section that talks about blockages. And one of the, the core parts of it is like, is it you, Jesus? <laughs> like, is it you? Did you do it? <laughs> um you know let's consider this uh let's sit in that for a little while <laughs> you might be like no it's not me but i just want you to sit with it just sip on it a little and see how it sets with you really um because yeah sometimes it's sneaky <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. we don't realize that we are the ones doing that um and your ancestors could be working to the bone trying to do it but they are limited also because you have choice within being the living ancestor um and so sort of like that active point and if you're blocking then like you know like if you're sitting down on the ground i guess we ain't walking right 
So, <laughs> yeah, if you if you go to your ancestors asking for money help <laughs> and you refuse to do anything that actually would make you money, they are going to have to work overtime to try and find you money. Well, so <laughs> like it, this it comes it up harder. in deity work too, where mm-hmm. you've asked for help. Yep, they're trying to present ways that you could be helped. If you're resisting. Sometimes they'll give up on you, but other times they'll say, well, this carrot ain't working. So that all leaves is the stick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, your ancestors yeah. might be doing some nasty stuff to you sometimes, but it's because you are not listening to what you need to be doing. I think, too, there was something that I think both of you have touched on in being very careful about which categories of ancestors you want to talk to, because like sometimes you really need the bastard to sort things out. But if you're asking for the good ancestors, and I think that mm-hmm. can sometimes be the factor too, is mm-hmm. if you're carte blanche reaching out to all your dead people, that is different than reaching out to your ancestors that have your best interests at heart. Because the ancestors that have your best interests mm-hmm. at heart might communicate like pricks, but they're going to do it for your, your own mm-hmm. good. Whereas the ancestors that just want your attention and your energy ain't going to contribute. It's also important, too, to know who your key players are, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, uh, the role that I often call the bouncer. There is always at least one ancestor. Many of them can do that, but there's always at least one that's kind of like the head honcho when it comes to it. And they are the one that will look someone new over and either give a nod of approval or a hmm of disapproval. Right. And and, you know, instantly what to do with that person. (laughs) And that is also another part of it. Uh, When people come and work with me, I always ask, like, okay, who's your bouncer? Who's your welcome committee? You know, who is your translator? Like who you got to know your people who who is your team? And, you know, they're all your team, but there are core people who step up and accept that role as part of, you know, I call it the spiritual posse, like your crew. Um, and that help you out as you help them, you know, because you're part of that crew, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, know who your bouncer is. Know who your bouncer is. Because if it's not cool with the bouncer, you should probably rethink what you're doing. <laughs> this is, I think, part of, like, having a coherent cosmology is so fucking important. In part because if you don't know who the bouncers are even supposed to be. Yeah. Well, So in heathenry, we have Dysia. And mm-hmm. these are powerful female ancestors. And they, generally speaking, are the ones that organize a lot of the family lines. But they also, mm-hmm. as I've done work, spirit work, uh, the the Federar, the powerful male ancestors, the Adiki, the powerful queer spirit worker ancestors, and the Thaver, the powerful queer ancestors, have all come out to me in some way, shape, or form, pardon the pun, um, Mm -hmm. who have some kind of organizing role to play, and they often fulfill this role of the bouncer. And that's, like, baked into the cosmology, at the very least, or the Desir. And the other ones, well, you know, not every heathen works with these other groups, but that's my own thing. Um, But having that as a as an identifiable thing in your cosmology is actually really important because especially if you're fresh new to things, mm-hmm. you don't have to figure out who all these individual beings are. You can just say, hey, Desir, come help me out. I don't know who the fuck this person is. 
Yeah. And that, that's also beneficial is knowing that you have those people who are in those roles so you can do that. Um, I think when I, I say, hey, know who your bouncer is, know who this person is, who's your welcome committee, who, you know, all of this, people get overwhelmed when they're first starting. Um, but, you know, that's slowly built up over time and you can always refer to them as their role. Um, they know who they are, even if you don't, you know? <laughs> I do have a question, and this is, if, if you're ready, we're going to shift topics just a little bit here, because a question came up on our Discord today, and I was actually kind of fascinated by in the timing of it, um, and with you doing mediumship work and that sort of thing, I actually thought this would be a great question to ask you, and the question was, um, do you ever feel like a person, a deceased person, is no longer contactable or no longer connected spiritually to any of the people they were connected to in life because they have not just moved on, but like almost ceased to exist as the same verifiable soul identity? Like, mm. have you had people essentially like drop out of the spirit line or the ancestor line and just kind of like vanish? Yes, actually, my aunt Violet. Uh, my aunt in blood um, has, and, you know, for a long time, I wanted to work with her specifically. I was like, I can talk to all these people, but I can't talk to you. And you're the one uh, that she would be my great aunt. And so she was dead by the time that I was living. And, but I'm a lot like her, I'm told. And so I always wanted to talk to her, <laughs> you know? Um, and I tried and tried. And finally, my grandmother, her mother came in and was like, my great grandmother, and was like, who is also my bouncer for the record, <laughs> and was like, look, <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Like, I appreciate that you want that. And we can all tell you about her. But like, that's, she's not, you know, like she has, she has, there is no phone line there anymore. It is shut down. This call cannot be completed as dialed. <laughs> exactly. This call cannot be completed as dialed. And when I asked why, they simply said, well, she's chosen that. She's chosen to not be here. And in that, sort of not be anywhere for all I know. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked at it as a like, well, maybe that energy got recycled back into something else. Maybe she chose to be in a whole other avenue. Um, I'm not sure. But yes, I have had that happen, and it actually was my own family. Wow. Well, that kind of makes sense in a way. I mean, not everybody yeah. is a spirit. You might make the choice to, could call it move on, could call it whatever, but if they just kind of like mm -hmm. drop out of the lineage or they can't be contacted to a larger degree, we don't know what happened to them, so... It is just kind of vanishing yeah. to a certain degree, but that makes sense. I always sort of looked at it as like the recycling of energy into mm -hmm. like the soul into elsewhere, into something else, into a different sort of energy. Um, because, I mean, I, I am a believer and it can't be like destroyed. So I think in some element she exists on some level in terms of the energy that she was. But she isn't there anymore. She is not she. She is not part of, and like we have the memory of that, and that memory has power, you know, and and and, and yeah, those imprints are still there, um, but the source is not that source anymore. No, 
See, I knew that was going to be a good question to ask on this interview. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a very good question. I have never been asked that before. But yeah, it totally happened to me. Yes. Yeah, was, you know, we we have a, a really good Discord community, and people mm-hmm. ask some really amazing questions, and and are experts in areas that that are always surprising to me. And that was just one that popped up today. I'm like, yes, we must ask. <laughs> yeah, and imagine my frustration. I was trying and trying and trying. I'm like, okay, look, I got this specialty. I can talk to dead people. I can finally talk to my aunt Violet. Nope, no, you can't. <laughs> denied <laughs> so i get it. it it's frustrating but also i don't know i think that that was just her choice yeah yep well thank you wonderful discord participant you know who you are <laughs> but we appreciate yeah, that thank you. that input um i i did also want to ask a little bit chris about how you got started on your path because you said that you had uh, a pagan and a christian parent so mm. like how did your path progress? What what how did you kind of get to where you are now? Oh, well, um I'm born in the boonies on a peninsula, water in three directions. Um and my father was Christian and my mother was always very quote unquote earth based. She's pagan. And <laughs> and um and so I was raised kind of in both. Um my mother was always a seeker from a very young age, she would ask questions of the Christian churches and et cetera, and uh, not really get the answers that she wanted. <laughs> and, um, and so from there, uh, she found paganism. Now, my great-grandmother uh, was also the town healer. Um, native salves, tinctures, you couldn't afford the doctor, you came to see her, Right. And so that was already kind of in our line in terms of the sort of herbal craft and that kind of thing. My mother is an herbologist, aromatherapist, et cetera, um, and, you know, nurse as well. And so healing has always been in our line. We have always been sort of the country healers and energy workers. Um, But my, my mother, upon really dedicating into the more earth-based beliefs, the more sort of spiritualities as opposed to sort of the Christianity thing. The more she dug and dug and dug, the more she was like, oh, wait, this is stuff that we've already been doing in our family for a really long time. <laughs> and um, and also sort of the, um, the like colonization that it happened to because there is native ancestry as well. And so a lot of it also was sort of um, washed over uh, and was hard to find. And that is actually earlier when I said there were stories that were lost to me that I had to go to the astral to get. That's part of that is because a lot of the living um, ancestors at the time in the family would not speak of being native. Because if you spoke of that, that's how you got killed or punished, you know, or put somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you didn't say that. <laughs> and, um, And so we dug in that too and, you know, uh, had a lot of sort of breaking down things that had been sort of skimmed over (laughs) or changed and facts checking things and looking through that. And, um, and really, uh, as she discovered things and she developed her own stuff also in tandem with what had already been handed down, um, I, started too. And I, from a pretty young age, I was 
pretty curious about cultures and spirituality. I remember I was homeschooled and I was like 10 or 11 and she got this like big thick book on like Egyptian mythology and the culture and how they lived and all of this and their rituals. And and she got it because she was going to break it down into little manageable chapters for me and go through it slowly. But she left it on the table and anything on the table is fair game, guys. That's the rule. So I brought it upstairs (laughs) in my room and binged read it in a night. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) and she was like oh i need to i need to break that up into a thing and i was like oh you mean that that book on the table and she's yeah and i was like oops i kind of already read it but it was really good (laughs) can we do more of those (laughs) you know um and so from a young age that was also something is like the the idea of there were different cultures and spiritualities other than one because obviously i had a christian father and a mother who was pagan right and so like different right there from the start like there were different views of life and what the meaning was (laughs) um and then also just exploring that through other cultures spiritualities etc seeing how other people believed and i think that was one of the biggest things from a young age having that in the idea that there isn't really one answer it's just everyone's different perspective and um, and that ultimately many of us are just seeking to sort of heal and commune in some way, whatever that is for us, and continue, right? And um, and so that then fell into me getting this little book. I, I have it somewhere, actually. It never is far from me. But it is called The Tao of Pooh, <laughs> and it's by Benjamin Hoff. And it is literally a book written like this guy trying to explain Taoism to Pooh Bear. And he's using Pooh characters to explain it. And this simple act of sort of, um, why do we not honor the tree as being a tree? Why must we wake it into something else? Why do we say it's a waste? We could sit under its shade. We could enjoy it. The sound of the leaves and the breeze. But, you know, no, we come and make it into firewood. We use it as other things. Um, or we could make it into firewood. Sorry, we could make it in firewood. We could do all of these things with it and it would be useful. But because we aren't, because it doesn't serve the purpose that we need it for, like maybe, I don't know, a chain. We would need a chain. So this tree is useless to us. No, that tree is still a tree and has many uses. You're just not using it the way it needs to be used. And so this mentality of like, everything is what it is and exists as it should be. You just got to figure out what that is, (laughs) you know, Um, really spoke to me as a kid because I saw that as people, as all of that. And, and, you know, we fitting ourselves into molds that we just don't have to fit in the first place. You know, we simply are and honoring that. And, um, And I was like maybe 13 when I found that book. And you can imagine a 13-year-old and all the teenage, you know, stuff going on. (laughs) Mind was blown. (laughs) And so, you know, at that point, I had dedicated myself. Um, And when I first started out, I was about 11, and I was working with Hecate and Horace. So I've always mixed pantheons. I'm sorry to anybody who cringes at that, but I've always have. Uh, Who comes to me, comes to me, and that's who I work with. Um, But yes, 
Uh, so there was that. But also, from a very young age, I was talking to spirits. I just always have. Uh, if you ask my mother, I have always been in my room talking to my quote-unquote self. Um, I remember being like seven, and it'd be the first day of school and the night before it. And so I was holding out outfits and things and laying them on the the bed and asking the ancestors, you know, which one should I wear? What do you think? You know, da, 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 and like feeling for them in their answer. And so from a very young age, I had that. I did not see yet. They didn't let me sort of have the ability to see, I'll say, until I was older and could deal with that, <laughs> which I'm, I'm blessed for that. Thank you. Um, but uh, I do remember from a very young age being able to feel them and talk to them. And uh, even there are stories of when I was in a crib and having a conversation with the, the local spirit, <laughs> um, you know, and then we moved. I would say the name. It was a very old name. And then we moved. And then I would never speak about that name again because the spirit wasn't there anymore. Yeah, right. You moved. That's yeah, we moved. <laughs> you know, I wanted, I wanted to point something out earlier. Um, when you said, you know, uh, I mix pantheons like the, yeah. the, the scholar uh, Terry Gunnell uh, wrote a article an, an article called uh, pantheon what pantheon in which the the notion of pantheons is kind of dismembered and i think that that anybody who, who is coming into paganism anybody that's coming to these concepts it's probably best to dispense with the idea of pantheon and think of it more like mm -hmm. there's culture groups there's you know so in the case of like nordic heathenry Different parts of Sweden at different time periods worship different gods as the head of whatever their local cultists would have been. Like, there's no one structure that has stayed throughout all of time. So why would we limit ourselves when we have access to all these different gods? And I'm not saying Pokemon it, but I'm also not saying, like, limit yourself either. It's just, yeah. a, a, just something that I wanted to, to I mean bring to folks' attention. Yeah, Honestly, no, I kind of, I agree. I kind of feel like uh, uh, pantheons sometimes are, are air quotes pantheons. It's it's different entities, deities, whatever. It's like using watercolors on wet paper. Mm. As soon as you get them close to each other, they start mm, going exactly. all over the place and mm -hmm. change, making their own borders. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, your I, you relationships know, I, with it, with the gods are just that, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Your relationships with them are yours. Um, and I mean, like, that's, that's like Hecate for me. I see Hecate very differently than many people see her, but she was a trades goddess. You can't, there's like so many versions. Oh, come on. Right. <laughs> a lot of the most popular gods that we know from like Greek culture were imported from other cultures, like the Phoenician Aphrodite, if I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, Dionysus went all over the place and, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I think also we're talking about archetypes ultimately as well, you know, archetypes that have served in different cultures as needed for what their land was, what their climate was, what their culture was, etc. And, you know, I am I don't know. I don't know what I am in terms of hard polytheist, soft polytheist, omnitheist, whatever. I think that they are individual, but I think that they are very much connected and they do speak many of the same points with different mm -hmm. mouths, you know? And so I think that that makes complete sense to me. And really, yes, the more you research them, the more it gets traced back. And honestly, that's a lot like ancestry too. 
the more you research where the line is, you realize that there isn't really a line. They all run together. And like yeah. there are like maybe core spots way back there. But overall, like there's a lot of blending. <laughs> there's there's a lot of, you know, area of effect, if you will, gamers. <laughs> Once it splays <laughs> outward. <laughs> you know, we got a source, but then we start blending over. <laughs> I mean the thing the thing about that too is, is that strikes me uh, whether it's as death work comes down the line from that or as you know life work if you will uh comes down from that like it's great that you know you can find all these things in the source but the source is undifferentiated and it's a jumbled fucking mess and it's hard to relate to mm. And so I think to a certain degree, like when you're talking about, you know, I relate to this God this way, or this is the God of, this is an attempt to kind of put some kind of understanding on beings that in some ways are just unfucking knowable in their entirety. I mean, if I don't know the whole of Jim and I've known Jim for shit over 15 years now. Yeah, something like that. So I don't know the whole of Jim. Even even Jim, I can guarantee there are parts of Jim that even his closest relatives, his closest people don't know. Mm, absolutely. If yeah. I don't have that level of access with Jim, if they don't have that level of access with Jim, I think after a certain point, it's kind of like, eh, it's not just that our gods are unknowable in their entirety. It's that everything is unknowable in its entirety. It's because I'm a cancer. I hide my squishy bits in my shell. (laughs) (laughs) I have a cancer moon. I know that feel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I concur. I, yeah, I think that that is, um, actually hell in herself worked with that whole lesson with me, um, specifically that lesson, but uh yeah there are so many versions of us through other people's eyes as well um and when you get into that on top of not knowing someone for who they are as they see themselves and then also the idea that we exist in other forms in other people um it gets really interesting right <laughs> so uh yeah i mean i deity is very unique to the person and only you and that deity know what your work is truly and you know yes um when we are talking about cultural things it's important to be respectful it's important to do our research it's important to know sources of things history credit etc um but isn't that also part of the work shouldn't you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> i would hope so <laughs> I would sure hope so too. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um but no. So uh but getting back to Jim's question about growing up and how I got here, um I ended up going to a lot of like uh workshops and things with my mother, uh Reiki, and different healing modalities. I did a lot of energy work stuff when I was a teen. And I think that was a big part of that. And then, of course, the drumming's, as I mentioned earlier, with the ancestors at least twice a month. 
um, and we would have gatherings of people would come or we would uh, sort of hopscotch people who hosted as well sometimes and uh, and having that. And I was always around a lot of crones uh, from a very young age. And, uh, and, you know, a few hunters and sages in there, but like it was a lot of crones and, <laughs> and, um, and around a fire. And that has kind of been the central part of my upbringing, uh, that and sort of just spending time with um, our elders, uh, both, you know, like I said, after getting dropped off from the bus, but then also the fact that the crones were there and they were much older than me. There's a lot of wisdom to catch there. Um, and just, I don't know, I always have felt more comfortable with that aspect. And so that aspect also means that um, in a quote-unquote natural life, <laughs> that would be close to the death gate. And um, that's part of it too. It's They're in a space where there, a lot of times they're like, yeah, that's a reality. Like this isn't a one day, it's a reality, right? And they, I think, have come a little more to terms with that than some of the others because they are so close to that gate. If we are talking about sort of the expected sort of line of mortality. Um, and I think that was some of it too. Um, and then, you know, I, I did nine to five jobs. I worked retail. I was in a freezer grunt and stuff like that. But the thing is, is no matter where I worked, I ended up doing things anyway. Uh, I would be reading for my coworker. <laughs> I would be counseling, doing spiritual counseling. I would do healing. I, here's a spell. Here, let me show you how to do this or that. Or have you ever thought of that? Well, your grandmother says this. And eventually I got to this point after my dad's death and all of that happening that I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, why am I in a freezer? doing this when like death could take me at any time she wants to and I have this thing that I'm doing no matter where I am why am I not just pointedly doing that to be able to provide that space and maximize like doing this? like if if I was born into doing this if this is just it just goes with me and who I am why is that not what I'm doing like all the time, if possible. And so I left that job. I got, uh, I was a manager. I left that job and I got a part-time and uh, I started building up my business. I took the money from leaving that because I'd been there for a while. And that's how I got everything to afford starting the whole business. And uh, I worked part-time and had certain days that I scheduled people and did that. And then eventually it got to where it was so full that I didn't need the part-time job. And I opened up those days too and did it full-time. And um, yeah, <laughs> I think it's just always going to be something I do no matter what I'm, it, whether it's full-time, it's part-time or whatever, it just, it comes with me. And the beauty of this is that now I get to do it, you know, fully. I get to, I get to sort of like, help more people to help themselves. And I love that because that also makes me happy. Yeah, we get, I think Sarah and I can both totally relate to, we do that work no matter where we go. Yeah. Mm. It comes with you. It's just mm -hmm. innate. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You can't get, you can't get rid of it. You can't get away from it. It follows nope. you. 
I'm on vacation. Remember... Sure you are. <laughs> exactly. I'm just picking up an IPA remember... from the store. No, you're not. <laughs> nope, you're not. You mean our IPA? <laughs> I'm just stopping in to see what this new store has in their you know, storefront. It looks like it's interesting. It's a new season. Let me go in. Oh, my God. I just read about the girls at the counter. <laughs> like you... <laughs> It happens all the time. I remember one time I had been working at work like 80 hours a week. I had figured out. And I really needed a break. And so I went to a party of a friend's. Oh, no. His girlfriend was there who we had never met. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) I am imbibing and relaxing and really looking forward to just like being off clock, if you will. (laughs) And that is not a thing. (laughs) Um. And as I'm talking to her about all these different things, I start seeing her grandfather and how he died and her grandmother's energy and all of this other stuff coming in. And I'm really trying to focus on her and listen. But you know what? Like the combination of liquor (laughs) and that (laughs) um, makes it really difficult. And according to her, I looked kind of down in a way, which is one of my tells for when I'm listening to a spirit because I'm like really distracted over here. And, um, and then I asked if she knew what I did like as a business. And she was like, yeah, you know, (laughs) he told me a little bit about it. uh, The boyfriend. And I said, okay, well, do you mind if I give you a message? Because I, I try to ask for permission. (laughs) Um, And then it turned into the rest of the night was, That, which got into ancestral trauma stuff, which got into other ancestors coming forward, which got like, and we ended up just being like, you know, let's just go in this room over here, like, (laughs) and and do this, Um, because this was the first time that she had showed up to a party. It was the first time I'd met her. And of course, it happens like that. Sure. Um, Yep. Yeah, you know, so meanwhile, we've got people like playing pool and like, uh, and bellowing and like, you know, whatever in the background. And we're over here like, (laughs) so let's talk about your ancestral trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So no, no matter where I go, even if it's time off, it's still time on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think there's still value. I I love it. I think there's still value in setting office hours. Sometimes they're more aspirational than strongly enforced. (laughs) Yes. It's good to have a guideline. It's good to do that and enforce that. But sometimes, sometimes there are just special occasions where it's just really needed. Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes will trust if like my bouncer and my welcome committee and all are down for it. I will tend to trust them because they know things that I don't know about that person and where they're at. Right. Billiards and ancestral trauma coming this <laughs> fall to ESPN eight the Ocho. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not what I expected. Not what I expected. <laughs> no, but it was a good night. Still, that's yeah. good. <laughs> that's great that your business is going so well for you, though. I'm I'm really mm-hmm. happy to hear yeah. that because that means that more people have the chance to to experience it and one more, you know. I feel like, you know, and Sarah has brought this up before many times, like it's it's important that we have the ability as a larger spiritual community to be able to have people that are more specialists now yeah. than there used to be. 
Mm-hmm. And so it just another person that's doing sort of a speciality is a really important thing to building a larger community and it's in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that if we're looking at sort of the medical field with doctors, we have the general one, but then we have the people who are trained in that specific area and know finer details. Um, and that, that makes complete sense to me that we would have that and have a need for that. Um, and, and, you know, not everybody, not everybody needs the same stuff. Yeah. Also exactly. on top of that, not everybody has the same delivery either. So even outside of the knowledge <laughs> right. of those things, you know, maybe you need a healer that's a little more blunt. Maybe you need one that's more of a Kuan Yin bedside. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a different, yep. there's a different vibe across that board. And some people work better with one than the other. And that's just how it is. And it doesn't mean that either are better or worse. It's just who you need. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Well, Sarah, was there anything else that you wanted to ask or bring up? I don't know. It's just, it, it, I really appreciate you, you taking so much time out to talk about your own practice and, and how you view things and really giving us a sort of a, a quick, deep dive on death work from a very different perspective from the other two people we've had the pleasure of, of interviewing. And I really appreciate that not only is it radically different but all of the different factors that you've been through and the experiences that make up where you've come from with this are still active living portions of, of how you interface with other people Mm -hmm. um, of where you bring yourself and your, your spiritual work and the expression of all these things kind of from this milieu that you got to grow up with and it's uh, such a different perspective, and I'm really appreciating it. How I'm just sitting back and just reminiscing over the last um, almost two hours that we've been sitting here. And one of the things that keeps cropping up is, you know, not everybody has to do the death work. And not everybody has to do X, Y, Z. But for those who are really called to do this, it's something that you, as much as you might want to initially, you can't ignore it. It won't let you Mm -hmm. be. And it's something that intertwines with your life in ways that you don't expect. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was, there was a phase of time where I was like, how am I going to work this death midwifery into the things, you know, that I want to do or that I already do. Um, how does that even meld? Because they feel like two very different areas that they exist, but they're actually really not. And, um, you know, I appreciate you saying that because, yes, it has been sort of like a, you know, one of those like raveled strings that kind of go back and forth and loop around itself <laughs> and out and da da da. But, you know, we out here and we're here. And, <laughs> you know, and it all kind of uh, has brought me to the place I am. Um, and, you know, I mean, on top of that, I've got uh, priestessing via my family, which that my animal is a phoenix through that, um, which is all about the death and the rebirth, right? Mm-hmm, and me being mm-hmm. the voice for the ancestral uh, women in the family. And so that is also a part of that for me. And uh, and then also a priestess through Luxunis, where uh, that's a, a whole other aspect of energy work uh, that I pull from. And uh, that goes into more of the um, interdimensional 
kind of space of things. And so it's not just the roots, it's extended out uh, very far in the things that I work with, but all of it is really sort of this skeleton of ancestors. Um, and all of it is experiences, which when we're talking to the ancestors and we're working with them, what are we asking them for? We're asking them for their knowledge from their experiences. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Yeah. yeah. Let us learn some lessons from you, which is much easier than learning them the hard way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, don't do what I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then also being able to pass that on to others who are living in your line. And that's yeah. something actually that I would like to put in. Uh, because a lot of times I have people say, well, I don't want to do ancestor work because it's not important to me because I'm not having kids. Yeah, well, join the club. I don't have kids. I don't have a want for kids. However, and kids are great. And, you know, people that have them continue. Not that you needed to be told. But, <laughs> um, but it's not for me. Uh, however, I do have nieces. I do have nephews. I do have people that I interact with who are my friends who have kids. I am still an adult and an example in their life. And so because of that, I am still a living ancestor to them. And so when you say, hey, I don't really want to do any, you know, ancestor work. I don't really have a place in that because like, I don't need to heal for my kids because I'm just not continuing the generation. We're done. I don't feel you know, um, that that's something worth it. Um, I would say one, um, it doesn't have to be worth it. It could just be a choice that you don't want to do first of all, but two, if it is because you don't feel like it's worth it, I would ask you where your trauma is. (laughs) 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 We would have a whole conversation about that. Um, but also I would ask you to consider the others who aren't direct descendants. Yeah. Um, Because you are actively in a world where you are setting an example, whether you realize it or not. And there's, again, that word responsibility that comes with that, too. And so, you know, it's not for everybody. And I get that. Um, But if that's one of your reasons. Yeah. Maybe consider the fact that it's not having a blood kid necessarily. You mentioned (laughs) earlier that, you know, this it. Some people have a very, you know, the first things you talked about, people have a very difficult sometimes with the word like family. And part of that is they might not have people in their life, even though they might have a mother and father, they might not have a mother and father or ancestors that are worthy of respect. Even if I were not to have kids, if I'm just leaving, uh, trying to live a good life and be a good human being and lead by a good example, I might actually be more beneficial to that person as an example of what an ancestor could or should look like. And so, you know, you, we're all part of the greater family of humanity to a degree. So we have those responsibilities as well. Absolutely. And that's, you know, like you said, that gets us into the teacher and the neighbor and the aunt and, you know, those kind of people that are in our lives that maybe weren't our Um, immediate parents, but have been role models in some way in our life. And, you know, did they think about that? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, you are one of those to somebody. Yep. Agreed. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been such a good conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, The link to your website, which is what Chris asked ashburn.com will be in the show notes for everybody. Plus they can find you, as you said, TikTok, Instagram, all over the place, right? So 
Yes. Yep. Patreon too. That's right. Patreon. How are you in the yeah, Patreon? Patreon? Yes. Patreon is the biggest thing right now because it just opened as of the first. So uh, that's that's the that's the one I'm pushing. Like, hey, everybody, check this out. <laughs> wow. Excellent. You just opened it on the first. I think you've got like what four hundred some odd posts well, already. So so it used to go. It went for like three years, and then I took a lull because okay. I needed that space. I had a lot of life changes. And now I'm coming back. And so awesome. I'm really happy to be back because creation makes me very happy. Um, and being in that space makes me really happy. So I'm excited. But yeah, so that's the thing that I'm really like pumped about right now and, and making sure that people are aware. Um, we'll and definitely put those also, show in the show notes too. Also in the Patreon, there are discounted um, sessions. And that is specifically because some people are on fixed income. Mm-hmm. or low income and i work with those people as well and that is what that's for it's limited spaces and sometimes they keep them for a long amount of time but i put that there as an option for someone because truly if you want to work if you want to show up and do it then i'll work with you you know yeah you have a, you have a lot of nice levels and uh, i was looking at it earlier it's it's a very nice setup so thank you yeah yeah you can find me there and you can find me on my website and all over the place. Just search chrisashburn.com. Make sure you're not putting an H in my name and you'll find me. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters as well. Thank you to our our Discord community, all the people that like and share the show. Your reviews count for a lot. Even just something like giving us five stars counts for a lot. It bumps us up on those algorithms and it's it's something that you can do for us or another thing that you can do for us besides listening, but we do appreciate you and we appreciate our entire community. So um, thank you everybody for listening tonight and we will talk to you next time around the fire. <laughs>